Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week, I'm delighted to say that my special guest is the great Alex Winter. When he's not being one half of Bill and Ted, Alex has carved out an impressive directorial career from the early 90s horror comedy Freaked to his latest project, Zappa, which is a documentary about the music legend built on a wealth of largely unseen personal archive material. Alex describes the film as not a music doc or a conventional biopic, but the dramatic saga of a great American artist and thinker. I caught up with Alex Winter to talk Zappa, Bill and Ted, and the future of civilization. So, Alex, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here. I was just saying just before, we have actually met in the flesh once, which, as you've just brilliantly remembered, was at the Dylan Dog Film Festival in Milan, where you you were showing Freaks, which was, it was, it was there was things about the title. At one point it was Hideous Mutant Freak, then it was Freak because the people yep. that owned the old Todd Browning Freaks got cross. Is that right? I, I think there was some aspect of that, maybe. I think that the studio thought the title was too long and may may be misrepresentative. It was like, again, it's going back quite a ways. I mean, we probably met in 92, I would imagine. Yeah, it sounds um, like it, yeah. Yeah, uh, we came over with Randy Quaid um, for that festival. I remember that festival very well. But uh, yeah, there was something like that. There was some some kerfuffle about, about the title. Um, and we love that original title, but you know it's the way it goes. There were there were many kerfuffles yeah. <laughs> with that film. So, but I was so, I was so excited because I was writing for Fangoria magazine, and anyone who listens to this podcast regularly knows that I kind of start almost every anecdote with when I was writing for Fangoria magazine because it was a big deal back then. Writing for Fangoria was a really big deal, and I was thrilled yeah. to meet you because I you know I loved Bill and Ted, and I really really liked Hideous uh, Mutant Freaks, and uh, and that festival I met you and I met Lance. Henriksen and I kind of thought that's it I can I can now I can retire because so many boxes have been ticked. We, we were the apex at that that's hilarious and I don't know whether you remember because you this may have been a joke that you rolled out more than once but you said I said to you where did you get the inspiration for all the for all the characters in Hideous Mutant Freaks and you said well it was based on a night in Leeds <laughs> That's I've seen that quote pop up on the internet. I guess that's where it came from. I don't I don't remember trotting that out ever. Yeah, but, I uh, promise, I'm glad I, promise, I did. I promise you, you said it. It originates in that article in Fangoria magazine. To this day, you need to be very careful in Leeds, Alex. <laughs> I'll probably just turn back into Ricky. 
Yeah, yeah. So look, let's talk about Zappa. So I love the documentary, and uh, I reviewed it when it uh, when it first came out. And uh, and I said that the thing that impressed me the most is I kind of have this baseline for documentaries, which is that a good documentary should interest you in a subject in which you were not previously interested. Now, obviously, I know Zappa's music. I'm a big Beefheart fan, but I can't say that I was a big Zappa fan. But I loved the doc, and I came out of it thinking, and I never thought I'd think this, I came out of it thinking I must track down some of his experimental orchestral work. So tell me about, you are clearly a fan. You were clearly in the Zappa camp from the beginning. So tell me about that. Yeah, it's, that's you know, that's that's heartwarming because that's actually to the degree that you ever have an agenda with a doc. That was kind of our agenda. Um, you know, the it, it struck you're not going to spend six years working on something um, only because you're a fan. Right. Um, it's just that's just not enough for that kind of commitment. But it, it always felt to me that Zappa's life was so extraordinary and so compelling, uh, whether you were a fan or not. It, it was really documentary worthy. You know, you're dealing with someone who was not only a brilliant musician and composer uh, and artist, but also was very politically engaged and very active um, and came up at a really interesting period in American history and global history. So. Uh, it just struck me that this was this was a life story that could be interesting to people, even if they hated his music. But yes, I didn't I, I didn't come in hating his music. Um, and I'm a big Beefheart fan as well. And I actually got to Zappa through Beefheart, um, which is probably not that uncommon uh, given my age. But, uh, you know, I, he was a towering cultural figure when I was young. You know, he was on Saturday Night Live a couple times. He was outspoken. He was funny. He was a great musician. But I didn't really get his music until after college. Um, and it really, it's funny you mentioned the orchestral stuff because that's really was kind of my way in. I really first was hearing that music and was very taken by it um, and then fell headlong into all of it, you know, going back to the early mothers of invention and then into the 70s heyday and all of that. And at what point did you discover that there was this extraordinary archive? Because, I mean, quite often with documentaries, the question is, what do you have access to? But he seems to have built an entire underground layer entirely filled with his history. He did. Um, look, it was it was uh, it was kind of legendary. Uh, there was some footage which we used some of in the film, and then we shot a lot of our own of him down in the vault uh, that I had seen. But you don't, you know, everything in rock and roll is so you know BS oriented by nature. Everything is hyper mythologized, and everything is apocryphal and anecdotal, and and largely untrue. So I, I didn't, I, I didn't really think it, it existed in any meaningful way. So uh, I, I pitched Gail Zappa, his widow, the idea of doing this documentary, and she was really taken by the pitch, but she said, which was great um, and, I, and frankly unexpected. I, I didn't think she was going to be. Uh, she was a, a you know notoriously tough customer. Um, but she felt that the, the story I wanted to tell couldn't be told without the vault. And so she said, you know, look, we've got all this material down in our basement and um, and I'd like you to have access to it. And then I went down there and it was room after room after room, floor to ceiling from before his birth all the way through his life and then post his death. Uh, and it turned out he was a rabid archivist um, and that he attacked that project with the same invention and zeal and perfectionism 
that he attacked his music and everything else in his life. So there was an enormous amount of material and uh, very daunting, actually. And it completely altered the course of my life at that period because I had to stop and preserve that material. And it took a couple of years. This is the number we always play when people ask us to play more because we know that after we play this, they couldn't possibly ever want to hear us again. We were loud, we were coarse, and we were strange. He had so much talent, it defied everything. You insist on very high and exacting standards. I think if you shoot any lower than that, you're going to wind up with something sleazy. Watch out where the huskies go, don't you eat that yellow snow. He was just writing all the time. He wouldn't stop. He heard things a particular way, and then he tried to manifest them in the world. Each show was like a composition. was considered the Pied Piper of Laurel Canyon. Any kind of rock star, especially the British guys who came to town, wanted to meet Frank. I haven't heard anything like it before or since. Frank embodied everything. You couldn't say, oh yeah, that's rock and roll, because it wasn't. It's jazz. No, it's pop music. No. Well, what the hell is it? It's Zappa. Hey there, so basically, you, your, your intervention, your involvement included essentially making sure that that archive material stayed in good condition because obviously everything starts to deteriorate. Yes. And Gail wasn't really aware. Like they had, you know, the family had obviously been down in the vault all the time. Um, there's a, a great member of, of the Zappa team, Joe Travers, who was kind of my right arm all the way through the dock, who's known as the vaultmeister in Zappa circles. And they'd been mining the vault for, for, for obviously primarily music content, right? They, they put out another gazillion albums of posthumous music of, of Zappas, and that's all been mastered and taken from masters that are in the vault. So it's not like they weren't preserving work down there, but they weren't focused on what I was going to be focused on, which was the ephemera which was 8 mil and Super 8 and 16 and all of these this film that Zappa himself shot when he was a kid and then video that he had been recording and collecting all the way through his career. Uh, that is very, very sensitive. And um, some of that was already gone, thankfully not a lot. But I, I said to go, I was like, look, um, before I do anything with this, I got to preserve it. Uh, any material that's down there that's endangered, and that's really, really expensive. So we went out and did a crowdfunding campaign. Um, and this was kind of after she passed away of cancer, sadly. Um, this was, a lot of this happened after her death, but we raised uh, uh, well over a million dollars and, and used all of that money just to preserve the vault material. And then I had to go find financing for the doc separately. So, yeah, it was a trip. <laughs> so you went into this as a film director. You then became an archivist and a preserver. And then finally, at some point, you actually got to work. With I can also imagine that sometimes when, the, I mean, I've spoken to some people who've made uh, rock documentaries. I know Julian Temple very well. And I've just been, you know, there's Nightingale's doc recently. Sometimes it's almost yeah. um, uh, a benefit if there isn't much material. But if you're suddenly faced with a massive expanse of material, I mean, that's kind of like the thing that would, you know, it's like the Stanley Kubrick, he never made Napoleon because he had too much shit to deal with. <laughs> you know, that's exactly right. There, there was, I was really grateful to get that access. And I was really blown away, as I knew I would be, on a, on a daily basis by the material we were getting back from the preservation um, companies that we were working with. But it was just a absolutely mammoth undertaking. And and there was a level of responsibility that I felt because, I mean, it, it was 
I would find myself even at my, I mean, we were using proprietary, very high-end, very sophisticated companies for the, the line share. There's some of this we just had to do ourselves. I was baking uh, audio uh, three quarters myself in my office every night for like a year. Um, and, you know, it's scary. The stuff is, you know, some of the stuff was, was, that's it. If you screw it up, it's gone. Um, and then, as you said, well, so, but, there's but, but, an app. But tape baking is such a weird thing because tape baking, yeah. you go, you go, well, how does it work? You, where you literally put the tape in an oven and you go, okay, yeah. that, that cannot be safe. And I remember the first time it was ever explained, I had read an article by Wendy Carlos about baking right. the tapes from, from Tron or something. And I couldn't yeah. for the life of me figure out whether this was a journey. No, you literally put them in an oven. Yeah, you'd literally do. I had, I had an oven uh, brought into my office. We had to set it up. We had to, I mean, this was literally, you know, I had to open a window and keep it open so that the, we didn't burn the freaking building to the ground because uh, we had to bake the tapes all night. And I also didn't want to set off fire alarms in the buildings. There are other tenants where my production company is. I mean, it was it was ludicrous on a certain level, but very Zappa on another. It was very homespun um, and weird. Uh, but yes, we, it, it re removes moisture from the from the tape, which is why you're you're uh, creating heat levels. Um, but there was an aspect creatively that that I thought, wow, you know, I, I had a movie in my head when I pitched it to Gail. I didn't expect to need or have access to the vault, so I was fully prepared to make it with uh, material that I gathered on my own, which has its own level of control. And suddenly that was shot to hell. And I had to think, okay, how am I going to make this thing with everything? Um, and and frankly, the way that we did that, Mike Nichols, the editor, and I was, uh, you know, I come from a narrative background. I was trained as a screenwriter and I really built it like a script. And I thought... This is the arc of his emotional journey. This is the arc of his of his creative journey. Anything that doesn't tell that story, I'm not using it. And I don't care how juicy it is or <laughs> kind of what gold it would be for the fans. It's not going in. Uh, and that helped a lot because it really gave us some boundaries to work within. Because otherwise, we'd st I mean, there's more footage than we would have time in our lifetime to even watch. Frank was very loyal to the people that had helped him along the way, even if they were the worst mother. He would um, go out of his way to help them. And I can count on one hand friends that he truly would spend time with. He was pretty forgiving for someone that he knew. But if he didn't know you, one chance, that's it. Done. You know, so he could be hardcore as well. Now, I don't know whether um, uh, hardcore Zappa fans would be f familiar with this, but I wasn't. I didn't know about uh, the, the animation. I didn't know that there was basically an animator. Do Tell us about that, because that works remarkably well in the dark, the animations. Yeah, thanks. Um, I grew up as a big, you know, I, I'm a filmmaker um, and I grew up with Bruce Bickford's work. He's a, a legendary uh, animator in those circles. Uh, I'm married to someone who's in animation. A lot of my friends are in animation. Um, so I was very aware of Bruce's work and very aware of his work in Baby Snakes. Uh, and it was very influential to me when I was young. A lot of the radical animators from the 60s and 70s were, were big influences for me. Uh, so I sought Bruce out immediately and he was, you know, uh, not in great health. And, uh, and then I really did a deep dive into the vault and I found an enormous amount of never before seen claymation work by Bruce. It's astonishing that stuff. The claymation stuff is just yeah. astonishing. 
Yeah, it's incredible. And, and you know, it to me, it was a way, it was a key for how we could tell the story through art because, you know, it is... It is an irreverent band of, of artists, you know, the Zappa himself, all the people that he worked with. Uh, and I wanted the film to kind of be spoken um, in their language. And, and and Bickford's work kind of let us do that, I think. And one of the things that's great about it is that because obviously the, the music itself is very complex and a lot of it is very kind of cubist and angular. But when you see those animations, actually, they do seem to be a visual expression of what of what Zappa is trying to achieve. And yes, they're radical and, and you know and funky and strange, but they're also weirdly beautiful animations. Yeah, Bruce was really a genius, um, and he and Zappa collaborated very closely. Bruce worked in Zappa's house; he set up a studio for him, and uh, and he lived there and worked there for some time, and then he worked there for many years. So it was a very, very close collaboration. Uh, there's footage of of you know Zappa behind the Bolex, like you know, knocking out single frames as well. So uh, it, it really did. Bruce's work spoke for the. Um, the specificity of Zappa's worldview in a weird way because he wasn't a, he was a, a freak but he wasn't a hippie he was a big part of the sexual revolution but he didn't do drugs like it was it was very idiosyncratic and Bickford's work is very idiosyncratic one of the things that's interesting talk, hearing uh, people who worked with him musically talk about him was that on the one level there is he's a musical genius you know it's not jazz it's not this it's Zappa on the other hand there's also the he will cut you off at a moment's notice when he when he decides did you get a picture of that balance between on the one hand brilliantly creative on the other hand slightly tyrannical i did obviously i knew going in uh what zappa's uh reputation was it 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 was well known um in all areas and the very (laughs) the very first time i sat with gail i said to her straight up because uh, I, you know, look, if if you guys are okay with me making this, then I have to go all in on his personality traits because I wanted to talk to her about his infidelity. I wanted to talk about his, you know, not only his misogyny, but his the somewhat tyrannical way he ran his band. Um, but I also had great admiration for Zappa and didn't see him in a black and white way. You know, he's a human being with flaws. And that's, you know, when you're making docs, that's one of the upsides to making documentaries is you don't, I mean, a lot of people do, unfortunately, but you don't have to make a hagiography. You don't, or you don't have to make a takedown. You can really paint a 360 degree picture of a human being. Um, and I was, it was really important to me to do that. And I was very taken by the artists that I spoke to, um, Ruth Underwood, uh, Bunk Gardner, you name it. Because even if they had problems with Zappa, which they all did to some degree, they they loved him so much and they were so grateful to what he was able to tap in their artistry. And every musician I spoke to was the same. And even if they started the interview just pissed as hell because it was reminding them of all of their, their, you know, some crap he pulled on them in like 1967. <laughs> They they ultimately ended up crying and just so, and, and I wasn't pulling that out of them. I mean, if they wanted to just rag on him for an hour, that was their prerogative. <laughs> it's not my, you know, um, but they didn't. They they really the more they talked, the more moved they became, which I thought was quite sweet. There is a kind of um, a, a moment in, in which his partner says, you know, you just didn't ask. That was the way, you know, how did you get through? You just you just don't ask. There are certain questions. That you, and I, I did feel like that was all the time in the background was you could ask this question, but if you want to carry on, you just don't ask anymore. Did you find that? Yeah, completely. I think that that 
that he was very intent on protecting his artistic vision. Uh, and he did that in the way he dealt with his bands. He did that in the way he dealt with his personal life. He did that in the way he dealt with the commerciality or the non-commerciality of his art. He did that with his politics. Um, I think at some early point in his life, and I, I think quite early, probably in his teens, he really felt, you know, this world is somewhat at odds with me. For some reasons I understand, and some reasons I don't quite understand. I'm going to dig in my heels, and I'm just going to do my thing. And he, that was his... That was the train he set himself on, and he paid a high price for that commitment. Um, but that was something that was very, very, very important to him. I didn't realize uh, before watching the doc that he had been so involved in the um, in the campaign to stop music censorship, which is particularly interesting since he it wasn't his records that were under attack. And I think one of the things that the doc does is it talks about that, but also says it wasn't him who was being attacked. And there's a there's an interview um, with him in which somebody says, why are you doing this when it's not your your records and everybody else is staying silent? And he says, well, the same way they have the right to freedom of speech, they have the right to stay silent. I thought that was a really fascinating section. I do, too. You know, uh, there was a lot of his biographical detail I knew going in, including the Senate hearings, because because those were quite famous when they happened. And his speech to the Senate is extremely eloquent um, and persuasive. Uh, and essentially helped save artists from being censored. Um, but I, there was a lot about him I didn't know until I found the archival material. And I didn't know the degree of selflessness um, and commitment he had to to trying to understand other cultures and the politics of his day. He he went to Russia and examined the, the economics of what was going on there. Obviously, he went to Prague. Uh, did all that work within the within the Senate was a huge advocate for voting rights, uh, and you know, like you said, it, this a lot of this stuff wasn't protecting his work. He wasn't just out there to try to make sure his album, you know, he could say whatever dirty things he wanted to say on his records, which was a lot. Um, uh, these were these were issues that mattered to him so greatly. The idea of the democracy and protecting democracy always mattered to Zappa, going all the way back to his youth and when he was arrested on kind of trumped-up charges uh, as a youth in, in California. So it was something about him that I found very inspiring, despite all of the peccadillas of, of his nature. And what about him becoming the cultural attaché, which was the, the, again, I mean, y you couldn't make this stuff up. <laughs> yeah, I know. He gets flown to Prague and uh, uh, and there's like 5,000 people waiting for him at the airport, like the Beatles. And Zappa had a, had a very realistic awareness of where he stood in the kind of commercial lexicon of, of the day, which was not that high, to be honest with you. He was not John Lennon. He was not making that kind of money, he did not have that kind of cultural impact. And he was very aware of that and and not grandiose in that way. He was extremely pragmatic. So I think he was completely blown away uh, when he went to Prague on Havel's invitation and was treated like a god, you know, like a or at least like a, a cultural titan of freedom. And he thought, what the hell is wrong? I think he really was kind of confused, to be honest with you. I think his ego wasn't such that he could completely accept it. Um, but he was very grateful for it. But he had, there was a you know, there is a liberated nature to his work that is that is authentic. You know, whether you like him or not, whether the, the lyrics irritate you, whether the complexity of the music puts you off, 
Uh, Zappa was very much about personal emancipation and liberation, and it's in all of his, just infuses his work. And that was really a big deal to people in the Eastern Bloc at that time. And do you think he took that, because it's kind of the question of, you know, how far he is a cultural attache and how far the Americans said, I'm sorry, we're not going to deal with you if you're going to put Frank Zappa in that position. But it seemed to me that almost everything, and again, I'm speaking only from what I know from the doc, because as I said, going into this, I didn't know very much. It seemed to me that everything he was given, he actually did take seriously. He did seem to think, okay, well, if I'm going to do that, then maybe I should do it properly. Agreed. Uh, He was a very sober-minded person. Um, And I think that was very important to us with the film to reflect that. He's known for his kind of wild and crazy lyrics, but he was by nature actually a pretty sober uh, and very serious-minded man. And uh, and he took world events very seriously, and he was very learned um, and self-educated about, um, you know, the Constitution and democracy and other countries and their democracies and their challenges. So um, I think Havel was... I think Havel knew that that uh, Zappa was very bright. I don't think that they did it. I mean, I don't. I know that's not what you're saying, but I don't think they did it as a stunt, and I don't think they did it just to thumb their nose at the states. In fact, um, I think they were very surprised that James Baker uh, uh, came down so hard against this idea of Zappa doing this, which of course only went back to the fact that Baker's wife was part of the PMRC, and and they yeah. all felt humiliated by the fact that Zappa <laughs> had had essentially trounced this attempted censoring artists so it was more of a tit for tat i think than because he wasn't john lennon in the u.s he wasn't i doubt there was an fbi file on zapper if it was it wouldn't have been very big he wasn't um you know his form of activism was very direct he would really he would create a rock the vote movement he would put up voting booths in you know the, the live performances so people people could register um he wasn't a huge countercultural uh fighter in that way um, so I think Havel was serious as well. I think I think that that Havel was serious, and Zappa was like, "Oh, geez, you, you guys actually mean this? I better like, <laughs> I better actually come and do this," you know. So and look, I, I I have no idea about your political affiliation. There, I make certain assumptions on the basis of the films that you've been involved in, but um, uh, we're at a remarkable moment at the moment that uh, you know the the Biden uh, relief bill has just gone through. I mean, absolutely no help from any Republicans whatsoever. Completely block voting, no. And I just wonder again, without making any assumptions about what your own political feelings are, do you feel? I mean, it was interesting for me seeing that documentary in what feels like a new age since forty five has gone, and it it kind of felt like the right documentary for this time. Yeah, that was obviously a sheer coincidence because we started the film, you know, while Obama was well entrenched in his his presidency and made it clean through the Trump fiasco that we just managed to skate through and survive um, by the skin of our teeth. And uh, and so there is a, a, a moving quality to the film that was unintentional in the sense that Zappa is fighting for the preservation of democracy and there's this feeling... Um, that democracy persevered. But, um, you know, my politics are not uh, quiet. I'm pretty vocal about them. And, uh, the you know, the film is, you know, my general view, uh, which is kind of borne out 
um, with this election is that you, democracy is a fight that you have to keep fighting, right? It's not something that um, that you get to walk into a voting booth and, and punch your 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 candidate and you know job done, <laughs> world saved, <laughs> go on your merry way. Um, and you have to fight. And Zappa fought and fought and fought and fought and ended up, in my opinion. Um, you know, expiring from cancer during one of the most challenging and autocratic periods of American political history, the Reagan Bush uh, days, which he fought vigorously the entire time he was alive. Um, so there's a there's an you know not an irony because it's just the way history moves. But I you know I I was also aware um, that there are there's a lot of similarities um, in terms of what he was fighting for and, and what we're all fighting for now um, and where. But he was very prescient and he warned everyone about this. He was telling everyone, look, if you don't go into the voting booth and you and you're apathetic, then autocracy will just take over. It's just the way it works, and that's why we got Trump. Well, also, I mean, people didn't vote, but you know, more so than ever now because you know unless you get the for the people act through unless the filibuster is dealt with in two years time you're going to be kind of back where you started and it is that thing about you do have to keep fighting each one of these things is actually i mean in a way the for the people and the filibuster they are almost more important than the election itself it, they are and the voting suppression uh you know there's a, there's big uh movement here now to to protect voting rights um hugely important uh, because that's going to be the easiest way for us to lose um, you know, basic democratic powers that we have is if uh, voters are not allowed to vote, which is the next kind of big fight we have on our horizon here in the states. There's a, a very big movement to to suppress voting ability, uh, which has a lot of support behind it because it's funded by very powerful interests. Um, so, yeah, we're in the middle of something. You know, we're not on the other end of something. We're in the middle of it. And right now. Uh, democracy got the ball back, but you know there's a lot of players <laughs> that are kicking at it. So <laughs> who knows how long we'll have it? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You know, during the, the, the last year, which has been very, very testing for, for everybody on both sides of the Atlantic, um, one of the things, and when I was doing the, the roundup of the year, I, I said this, and I said this at the time when it came out, and I, I mean this in all sincerity, one of the glimmers of sunshine in last year was Bill and Ted Face the Music, which just felt like, oh, thank Christ yeah. for that. 
it felt like the biggest smart. I mean, firstly, because, you know, after the first two, you didn't, you know, please let it be good. And then when it's evident that it's not just good, but it's really good, it just, I, I smiled and laughed like an idiot from beginning to end. And it, it was in the one of the darkest periods. So firstly, thank you, because it was such a joy. But... You know, oh, how, what, you. how do you feel about that now? Because I'm, 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 I'm really not just saying this, Alex. I watched that with my wife, and we, it was just like a ray of sunshine in a dark abyss. Well, I really appreciate that, Mark. Um, it was very hard to make. Uh, it took us 10 years to get it financed. Keanu and I had never intended to make another one. But we're very close with the, the writers, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, and they pitched us a take, gosh, I mean, well over 10 years ago now. And we thought it was, we thought it had potential. We thought that it was playable from an acting standpoint, which was our biggest concern, was how, you know, it allowed us to just be our age. Uh, extremely important. Um, <laughs> but we thought, because <laughs> there ain't, ain't no hiding it. Um, and uh, and it also had this, this ability to be both heartwarming and funny. Um but then, you know, they wrote a script and we took it to market and everyone said no. Um, and then they we did revisions on it and we took it back to market and everyone said no again. And then we brought back our original producer and Dean Pariso, who's a genius, who directed Galaxy Quest, you know, dotted up the script a bit more, took it back out to market and everyone told us to get lost again. So, you know, by the time we got it made, um, we were... You know, we were very um, committed to trying to make something that we thought would have a reason to exist. And uh, we weren't self-serious about it. Don't get me wrong. We didn't think the film had to exist. <laughs> we just thought, look, if, <laughs> if we're going to do this, it should be funny and sweet and authentic. And it should feel like a Bill and Ted movie. It should be weird. Right. And we shouldn't be trying to pretend we're something that we're not. So we just made it. We were like, let's just go for it. And people either like it or they won't. And then COVID hit and we were faced with this quandary of do we just stick the film on a shelf for two years? Because that's what it would have required. Or do we just figure out a way to get it out to people now? Um, and we really wanted to do the latter. We really felt like fans had been waiting a really long time. We felt like the moment was right. It's a very sweet you know, good natured film and people were in a really bad state. And we thought, why not? Like, why not just put this out in the world? And people may not like it, but the people who do, maybe it'll give them, you know, put a smile on their face at the end of the day. But that was, that was exactly what it did. And uh, when I was doing the, you know, the roundup of the year in film for the BBC, which we do every year, you know, we ended it with Bill and Ted because it just felt like, you know, it, as I said, it was the light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm, and that thing about not shelving it, because, you know, Bond getting stuck and everything, all these things that were going to be islands of relief, all just moving back. You, We really needed that film at that time. And I mean, I just laughed like an absolute idiot all the way through. And also it's lovely because there's always the Godfather 3 factor, you know, one, great, two, brilliant, three, mm, you know, so there's always... Yeah. The, <laughs> um, was there any part of you that thought we might we might blow it? Of course. Yeah, none of us are that have that much hubris to think otherwise. <laughs> I mean, especially poor Ed Solomon, who's like, you know, the greatest person in the world. I, I don't know if he slept for a year. He was so terrified that we were going to just completely screw the pooch. Um, <laughs> when we were rehearsing, Keanu and I, you know, we were we were doing readings and working on the script. And and Ed and Dean and Chris would always kind of look at us like, when are they going to go into character? Do we know you? I'm Kelly. Wait, you're Rufus's daughter. 
I am. And I've been wanting to meet you my whole life. It must be very disappointing. Not at all. We have a problem, gentlemen. Potentially a very serious problem. About the music? About the music. They just want to talk to you. <laughs> Dude, I got a very bad feeling about this. It'll be fine, Ted. They totally love us in the future, dude. So, you know, they kept looking at us like, when are they going to go into character? When are they going to go into character? And we just didn't because we were trying to figure out the logic and make sure that it worked and make sure that the story worked and make sure that our characters worked. And I think it was literally like we got to New Orleans and we were rehearsing and we were getting ready to shoot. And at one point, we would, Keanu would work over at my house in New Orleans every, every weekend. Um, and we were working together on the script. And it was like Sunday night before the shoot at like 11 o'clock at night. We looked at each other. We were like, we should probably try the actual character. <laughs> like we, should, <laughs> we should we should actually probably rehearse in character, right? Like we probably shouldn't just walk onto set never having actually done the voices, right? And I think both of us, for all of our training and, you know, the, the, the 10 years of trying to get it made and the working on the script and working on the script, I think both of us thought, what if we just suck, you know? Like, <laughs> what if we just really don't have it? Like, and we worked on it and like suddenly, cause you know, we've been really close friends our whole lives. So we see each other a lot, but we're not Bill and Ted, obviously. <laughs> and we went into character and we just started riffing and like, we looked at each other like, oh shit, this is really fun. Like these guys are, it's really fun to be back in their shoes. And it wasn't like we knew it was gonna work. But we kind of knew it was going to work at that point. Like, we were like, I, we get it. There's a way into these guys at this age. Like, there's a way into their voices that just felt natural. And we are like, look, everyone's not going to like it. Some people are probably going to hate it. But we felt like the movie we wanted to make, we were going to be able to make. Yeah. So to sort of bring this to, to something approaching a conclusion, you know, you've had a really productive period recently. And as I said, the Zappa doc is great. And, uh, and and Bill and Ted's great. So what's what are you doing now? Because obviously you're you're kind of, you are you are the living embodiment of the three hundred and sixty degree. What do they call that? Three hundred and sixty degree talent, whatever it is. You know, he can do this, and he can with well, a triple threat. So what's 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 on the cards next? Um, honestly, I wanted to go back into Dockland. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I will do some more acting. Uh, I'm being pretty pretty judicious about what that is and how that is, and I don't mean again over serious. I just mean it has to sort of fit within the lexicon of my life and my family and everything else. Um, you know, I still train. I love acting, and I'd like to to kind of add that back into my my world again a bit. So I'm looking at acting projects, uh, but I'm making, I wanted to go back and make a technology doc again. Um, I hadn't done that in a while. And uh, uh, the world is so specific right now. And there's so many trying, challenging things going on. And so much of that relates to technology. Um, and I've been very involved in technology and the internet since the 80s. So it's a world I know quite well. Um, so I can't talk in total detail about it yet, but I've embarked on a, on a pretty ambitious technology doc um, that involves politics and technology and kind of the moment that culture is in literally at this moment. Um, so right, that's all hands on deck. That's really what I'm doing. And I'll be on that for a while. But it, into that, I'm, I'm doing some writing um, I'm writing a couple of things that I could act in. Um, if the acting gods let me do them, then I will. And if they don't, I'll do something else. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen any of the uh, of the Adam Curtis uh, project? I can't get you out of my head. The most recent thing that he did, which is oh yeah, amazing. Yeah, huge fan. 
Yeah, huge. And that whole thing about, you know, the relationship between, you know, culture and the interior world and the and and technology, I thought was really, really fascinating. And obviously he's got a very particular take on it. But I love the fact that his particular take also involves playing really strange pop music choices at moments. That's what that I was about to say. Expect. I love the music. Yeah, yeah. His, I mean, it's a really, the thing I love about, about that filmmaking is it's extremely personal. Um and it's a very idiosyncratic and personal way into to that world. I've, I've always been a fan. Well, look, I really look forward to whatever this whatever this technology project is that you're going to do. I understand that, obviously, you know, you don't want to talk too much about it in advance. But look, congratulations on the Zappa doc. It's great to, uh, to, to speak to you again after all this time. And how brilliant that you actually remembered uh, the Dylan Dog Festival, which was wonderful. Um, uh, I love the Zappa doc. I, I love Bill and Ted. I'm a big fan. It's been a real pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great having you. Yeah, Mark. Likewise, I'm a huge fan. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great. Well, there we are. That was my conversation with the great Alex Winter. It's a pleasure to have him as a guest here on Kermode on Film. You can find Alex's documentary Zapper at altitude.film plus all the mainstreaming services like iTunes and Google Play. And you can find Bill and Ted online. It's also available on disc. Thanks ever so much for listening to Kermit on Film. If you've enjoyed it, tell your friends. Remember to subscribe. Do visit our Patreon page where there's loads of video extras. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.